Let's pray. Lord, thanks for today, and thank you for um, calling us to do this very thing that we do. And we're, we're thankful that in your infinite wisdom that you didn't save sinners like us to be alone, that you've given us uh, the comforter in your Holy Spirit, but not only that, uh, you've given us the church, the body of Christ. And uh, we're thankful to be able to participate and to enjoy the one another's and certainly to be able to minister to each other during great times and during low times all of the time seeking to exalt Christ because of all that he's done for us. So thank you that we get such a great blessing to be able to be a a part of the church and even to be able to be a part of this church. And we're thankful for what you're doing and what you will do as you seek to draw attention to your own grace and to your own greatness. Uh, Please use us in the process, even in this city. In Jesus' name. All right, I want to begin this morning in our study together by asking you to think about something that sounds exciting at first and then not so exciting. Imagine going to Memorial Stadium, opening game day. Some of you probably will be going. You're going to go to Lincoln to see the Huskers play. Imagine, if you will, standing on the field yourself in front of 86,000 Fans, fanatical fans. It's exciting. What a place to be. And now I'd like to kind of ruin the image for you. Imagine going to Memorial Stadium, not for a football game, but for a memorial service. Still standing there on the field, still looking at 86,000 people, but not screaming but dead. What would that look like? An auditorium, a coliseum filled with dead people. And you say, why would you want us to even think about that? Because it might give you a little bit better idea of what happens in the world every day. Oh, wait a second. You'll have to go to two memorial services at Memorial Stadium. Because somewhere between 150 and 200,000 people die every day. Pretty unsettling, pretty morose, pretty disturbing. Well, this morning we're going to talk about death and we're going to talk about dying and the suffering that goes along with it and not only that, what goes along with being in a world filled with death in a world that is dying you might say, why in the world are we going to do that? well, not to fit in with culture (laughs) because our culture is designed because no doubt that's how we want it to be designed to have us not think about death there was a day where you would have, when you would have walked by graves coming in here this morning. People's bodies were buried in the churchyard. There was a day when people would die in the home. Not typically anymore. We, we do all that we can to pretend like it doesn't even exist. But the reality is, it does. It does. And with such a big problem, the problem of death, I feel responsible as a pastor, since the Bible says a lot about it, to say, hey, we need to talk about this. We need to talk about death, your death and and my death, and the suffering that, that leads us there. 
So I want to do this because it's a biblical matter and also it's a real matter. Let's not pretend. And also, because a lot of times Christians, like you and like me, if we're Christians, we can be very confused about death. And the Bible's not really confusing about it. And so let's, let's understand. Let's be realists. Let's be aware so that we can glorify Christ amidst reality, even the reality of death. And so that's where we're headed. We'll be in Psalm 90 this morning. So if you have a Bible, you want to turn to Psalm 90. And the plan, uh, according to my calendar, so Lord willing, will be to look at this matter of death today, mainly on a theological, textual level, because I want to ground this in Scripture. And then we'll move on next week to talk about the practical and even the very practical issues related to living and dying. And uh, Lord willing, the plan for me is to start Romans when everyone's back from their staycations and vacations. And uh, once we get back into September, we'll be Romans 12. So it's a great turning point in Romans. How do we respond to the gospel? I can't wait to get into Romans, but I want to talk about this matter today. It gives us some time to do that. And next week too. So don't fault me for the lack of practicality, practicality today. Uh, even though it will be practical. But next week, having laid the foundation in Psalm 90, we'll really start talking about what does this look like to number our days as Christians in a way that would honor Christ. Psalm 90 can be broken into two sections uh, rather easily. You, If you took time to read it, you'd discover this rather quickly. The first 11 verses, uh, Moses affirms guilt before God. first 11 verses affirm guilt before God. In verses 12 to 17, Moses calls for redemption by God. So the first section, first 11 verses, there's an affirmation of guilt before God. And the second section, there's calling for redemption by God, verses 12 to 17. As you might guess, the first section is the heavy section, and it's pretty hopeless. And the second section is the exciting, hope-filled section. So you want to hang on there. Hang on at least till the second section. Okay, affirming guilt before God. Let's go ahead and look at the introductory verse in verse 1. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. So it is a prayer. It's the only prayer of Moses that we have in the Psalms. That's for sure. The man of God, that technical Old Testament and New Testament phrase for the one who speaks for God like a prophet. Then verse 1 says, Lord... Because it is a prayer. You have been our dwelling place in all generations. And I don't want to belittle that verse because it's true and it's right and that's a good way to start your prayer. God, you've been faithful to your people. But that's not really what the psalm is about. I don't want to say it's just a formality because that wouldn't be right to say. But then he, what he does is he, he moves on to the real subject at hand. He acknowledges God's faithfulness, His faithfulness in all generations, but then He leaps from that statement about time, all generations, to the subject at hand. Look at verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. What a great statement is that. What a great way to start your prayer. Acknowledging God. This is who you are. You are from everlasting to everlasting. You are the eternal God. You have no birthdays. 
There is no funeral. You, 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 you had no beginning. You have no end. You are the eternal God. But not only that, please make sure you notice in light of the flow of where we're going to head, he's acknowledging the sovereignty of God. God is the creator. And if he's the creator, he created. That means he's the sovereign, the king. It belongs to him because of the nature of the fact that he made it. That means it's his prerogative to establish laws. That means it's his prerogative to do whatever he wants with his creation. And so we want to keep that in mind because no doubt he's going to build upon that kind of thinking. At first it sounds rather harmless, it just sounds praiseworthy, and it does sound great, and it's all true. But having said that, that's preparing us to hear verse 3. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. Notice the contrast. You are great and eternal and in charge and it's your prerogative and what do you do with this world that belongs to you? Verse 3 tells us, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. You might notice in your margin, some of your translations have a marginal reading there for that last word, man. can be taken or translated as Adam. Adam. Let's read it that way. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of Adam. It should kind of sound familiar if you've read the Bible before. If you've gone to maybe a couple of Sunday school classes in your life before. What kind of, where does this verbiage come from? Return to dust and say, O children of return, O children of Adam? Genesis 3.19, you can write it in your margin. God said there, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Return, O children of Adam. Oh, now we know where he's going. God who's sovereign, who created, it's his prerogative to do what he wants with his earth. Oh, remember back in Genesis, he said, here is what my law is. In essence, treat me like I'm God and do what I say. And if you don't do what I say, you will surely what? You will surely die. And sure enough, Adam rebels. And sure enough, he dies and returns to the dust like in Genesis 3. And sure enough, as we've learned before in Romans chapter 5, and you could go there and look at it at your leisure, we were in Adam. Adam was our representative. And so Moses is praying to God who is eternal, who's the creator, who's the sovereign, and he says to God and acknowledges that God, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of Adam. God, you judge. You judge. And you judge in the form of keeping your word in the form of death we're already seeing where death comes from to the children of Adam. It comes from the curse. It comes from God. The God who has prerogative to do what He wants to do with His earth. In one sense, I, wasn't, I wish it wasn't so logical. I wish it wasn't so clear. But it is. The human race in Adam as our representative rebelled against God. 
and sinned. And there's corresponding judgment that followed. It continues developing this contrast in verse 4. Look there with me if you would. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Again, a great verse for systematic theology, learning about God's eternality. But what's so interesting is in one sense, it's, it's awful here because God, you are this eternal God. And, and, and that's in contrast to, to those who've rebelled against you, who tried to knock you off your throne and treat themselves like they're God. We'll do whatever we want to do. Who do you think you are? Genesis kind of stuff. Verse five, you, you sweep them away as with a flood. You're so great. Look what you do to rebels. Who's the them referring to in verse 5? You sweep them away. That would be the children of Adam back in verse 3. And how does he do it? With a, like with a flood. It's just devastating. They're powerless to stop it from happening. They are like a dream, short-lived, like grass that is renewed in the morning. Verse 6, in the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades away and withers. Moses' purpose is to show God's greatness and His sovereignty and to contrast that with how He deals with sinners who have rebelled against Him. Keep reading with me if you would in verse 7. For we, for we are brought to an end by Your anger and by Your wrath we are dismayed. Then verse 8. You have set our iniquities before You, our secret sins in the light of Your presence. Do notice, wrath, anger in verse 7. That's what leads to the devastation. That's what leads to death. It's the anger of God. It is the wrath of God against spiritual rebels we call sinners. And isn't it interesting in light of verse 8 that God doesn't have to somehow look for witnesses? He's going to have a hard time building a case against rebels because you know he has to find people who were actually there to witness the, the rebellion. And that verse is making it clear that he saw the whole thing. It was all before him. It was all on his stage. It was all before his courtroom. Verse 9 says, For all our days pass away under your wrath. Why is there death in the world? You should know the answer to that. I should know the answer to that. Why is there suffering and turmoil and chaos and all the things that surround it? We should know the answer to that. This is, this is basic Christian worldview stuff. And if we don't understand this, then we will never understand redemption. We'll never understand Christianity will never understand Christ, will never understand death, life. You've heard that song title or that statement, Death Becomes You. I kind of wanted to call the sermon that. Somebody said to me after the first service, a friend of mine, he said, Wow. I was listening to that sermon thinking, what would a new person think? <laughs> so I hope they would at least understand why there's death in this world. He said, oh, no, no, don't get me wrong. It was a good sermon. Okay. 
Death is not natural. When someone says death is just a natural part of life, know that you've been lied to. It is not a natural part of life. It is unnatural. Death comes because of the wrath of God. Just read Psalm 90. Read Genesis 3. It's not natural. Genesis 2.17, You shall surely die. Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is, you know, death. And under this curse of death, verse 9 goes on to acknowledge that. Look what it says there in verse 9. We bring our years to an end like a sigh or a groan or a moan. It doesn't end well. The end of our years, ugh! And by the way, that was a very toned down version. Not a Hollywood version of what it often sounds like when people do die. I haven't seen that many people die. But I've been there to know that it's never come out of my mouth. They went peacefully. It's an awful sound. At least what I've witnessed in my novice years. How do we go? Like a sigh. Probably using it because so many times that's how it is. There's that final gasp. Troubling. Disturbing. Why does it happen that way? It has everything to do with being sons and daughters of Adam. It isn't if you die, as we like to say. It's when you die. Verse 10 then says, the, the years of our life are 70, or, or even by reason of strength, 80. So because of sin, our lives are short. He's making the point here, wow, they lived a good full life. They lived to be 70 or 80. That's a disaster when you think about the big picture in light of Genesis. You know what? Sin is so bad that it's brought the wrath of God to the point where people, if they live to be old, they live 70, maybe 80. And he's using it as a general number. Some people live longer. Some people don't live as long. But the idea is, you know what? Because of sin and rebellion, there's the judgment of God. And it means people only live to be 70 or 80 years old. This isn't a good thing. Verse 10 goes on to say, yet their span is but toil and trouble. It just gets worse. They are soon gone and, and, and we fly away. So because of a sin, our life is short. It's not going to end well. And, it, and it's hard along the way. And at the end of verse 10, then we fly away. I, you can't convince me that in this context, that's a positive thing. I'll fly away, oh glory. Great song. But that's not the spirit of this passage right here. It's the context of dust. Then we fly away like nothing. Then it's like dead grass and the wind just blows it away like nothing. Uh, so, so this is hard. You, you, you die early, tragically way too early, even if you live to be 70 or 80 years old because of what's happened to this world. And not only if you have 70 or 80 years, do notice again what he says in verse 10. It's toil and it's trouble. So amidst all the good things in life that we get to enjoy, and, and even unbelievers get to enjoy good things in life, uh, the Bible teaches clearly that, that the, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. 
But you know, the older you get, and you look at life and you say, I've had a lot of great things in life, but you say, life is hard. And it seems to be getting harder the older I get. Because I witness how hard it is in other people's lives, in my own life. And Moses is acknowledging these things before God, even in prayer. Think about the the toil and the trouble of verse 10. I wrote down death, dying, disease, aging, accidents, emotional turmoil, heartbreak, devastation. And then I wrote, oh... And then you die. Pardon my uh, crudeness. But it's enough of a cultural slogan that we put it on t-shirts. Life sucks and then you die. And you know what? On a certain level, before we get to the second part of the psalm, it's true. Life sucks and then you die. That's it. Man. Another cultural saying we like that's not true is life's just not fair. And we say that. It comes out of our mouth in the context of suffering. Life just isn't fair. But you know what? The suffering actually is fair. Unless you mean it's not fair in that we should have it worse. See, when we look around us and we see all of the suffering and all of the turmoil and all of the death, fingerprints all over it of the fact that we are children of Adam. How about this? Maybe I can change it a little bit. Fingerprints of the wrath of God everywhere. And you say, I wouldn't say it that way but that's the way Moses says it. We rebelled in Adam. God made a promise and God is following through. Cemeteries, funeral homes, hospitals. How about that one? Hospitals. When you drive by a hospital, there's a new thought this week. Oh, please do realize that Hospitals are great places. And great mercy is shown and compassion and healing. More often than not started by Christians wanting to be compassionate. But please, please, let's be a little bit more fundamental first, a little bit more rudimentary first. There should be no hospitals. There should be no doctors. Or doctor's bills, amen. There should be no medicine. There should be none of this. It's rebellion. And we get what we bargain for. We shouldn't be getting older and more frail. Imagine that. We should just be getting wiser. (laughs) But keep our hair. (laughs) And no knee replacements. And no nursing homes. 
We're in a mess. But please know why we're in a mess. There's a problem between us and God. This past week I went to the dermatologist. I canceled my appointment enough times I think they were going to come to my house if I didn't show up this time or my wife was going to make me go. See if they wanted to, you know, do some more cutting and some lasering. It's an interesting smell. <sighs> I was in the waiting room and I saw an elderly man. Very feeble and weak. And I held the door for him and I couldn't help but look at least a couple of times because he had no hair and he had so many stitches on his head that it, it, it was just unsettling. And I just had to look a couple times and look again and you think, man. And my heart just sunk and I thought, this poor old guy. And I've been thinking about Psalm 90, knowing, studying, and I just thought, you know what? It actually, it shouldn't even be happening. Right? I had pity on him. I hope in a Christian way. Went into my appointment. And they're looking at my back and looking all over me. And I'll, I'll quote what the doctor said. Oh, you have a lot of spots, bud. <laughs> the bud part just to make me feel better, I guess. <laughs> and they say that every time. Every time it's like they've never seen me before. And it's, oh, <laughs> my. You know, kind of like, should we cut something or not today? Because it's kind of a, you know, a gamble anyway. I'm kind of used to that. But then it struck me that I am that old man. It's just a matter of time. So I said to the doctor, tick-tock, tick-tock. And the doctor said, it's true for all of us. And I thought at least we're starting a conversation here. The doctor knows it's true for all of us. But you and I sometimes try to live in the world where we pretend like it's not true for all of us. It's true for all of us. And it's not natural. It's not normal. It's not how it's supposed to be. And we need to know that. Or we'll never seek a solution to this, an ultimate solution. And we'll never even have the kind of hope that we should have as Christians. Because it doesn't ultimately have to end this way. Okay, so Moses acknowledges his guiltiness, not just his, it's the human race. It's the, it's the offspring of Adam, Adam. And, and he acknowledges that it's fair. He's not saying this isn't fair. He's seeing the promised consequences of suffering. And then the most provoking question comes, a most provoking question in verse 11. Here's where it all turns. This is fascinating. Look at 11. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? That's such a great question. Stop and think about what he's just asked. Who considers the power of your anger? Who stops to think about this? And no doubt the implied answer he's anticipating, he's assuming is, very few people. 
Very few people do what we've even been engaging in here in this time we've had together. Very few people stop and say, you know why everything is the way that it is? It's related to a spiritual problem. It's a God problem. People just don't do that. They just say, this is a natural part of life. It's just how it, how it, how it ends. And he's saying, basically, who's going to stop and put two and two together? Sadly, not very many people. And your wrath according to the fear of you. Then I like, I like the ending even better. Who stops to think about all of this in these terms and responds appropriately to God? Who does that? Not many. Not many at all. I've been following the news a little bit in the UK. They've been talking about Richard, uh, Christopher Hitchens, the famed atheist. Perhaps you've heard his name or heard his name. He now has throat cancer. Christopher Hitchens is not saying... This ultimately is tied to human rebellion. The wages of sin is death. And look, I'm part of a fallen human race, a son of Adam. But you could pray for Christopher Hitchens. That by God's grace, he would put two and two together. And he would be one of those few that asked the right question in verse 11. Or a Christian. Imagine that a Christian would be able to know the right answer to that question, even if Christopher Hitchens isn't asking it. You know, I'm told, I've never experienced this firsthand, but I'm told that the number one question that freshman college professors like to ask new students who come to college from Christian backgrounds so that they can ruin their faith because Christians just don't have an answer to their question. And it's the ultimate conundrum that just baffles Christians and they just can't answer it is this question. How could a loving God allow suffering to happen in this world, especially if he's all-powerful? You have got to be kidding me. Please be able to answer that question. I mean, we're just talking about like basic, basic, basic Christianity here. Why do bad things happen? Because we are bad people. <laughs> it's called being sons and daughters of Adam. And God is powerful enough to pour out His wrath on the whole world. Look around you. And it's not why do bad things happen to good people, right? It's why do good things happen to bad people. Please. Did I say it right? Please think Christianly about suffering and death. Let's move on. Somebody go get me an espresso. I need to. <laughs> I don't want to talk about death anymore. It's killing me. No. <laughs> Courtesy laughs. You guys are awesome. <laughs> 
Here's where it gets good, okay? Here's where we're ready to understand redemption, or we would never understand it otherwise. Calling for redemption by God. Notice how intense it is. Put, sit back, fasten your seatbelts, put your trade table up. We're going to experience some turbulence here, okay? Verse 12. So Moses says, So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Don't you love it? In light of all this, he's been praying, and and it's a prayer of confession, you might say. It's a prayer of adoration, you might say. And now he's moving on to supplication, requesting. All right, in its intense, God, therefore, so teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. God, God, therefore, by your grace, and this must be by grace because he's asking God to do it. God, teach us to to, to realize that there's an end. And we're going to meet this God who is angry with sin and who's done this to this world. And so teach us to number our days. Teach us to be ready to meet this God. Help us to see this. And isn't it interesting that he says that we may get a heart of wisdom? Reconnect that to verse 11 that we saw just a little while ago. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Connect the fear of God with a heart of wisdom. Think in light of Proverbs, the beginning of wisdom is the what? Is the fear of the Lord. God has done this and He's to be reckoned with. You should be afraid of Him. This is the beginning of wisdom. You want to know where death comes from? It comes from God. Be afraid of Him. And now we're on to something. Because now you can start thinking about the fact that you're going to meet Him. And that would be wise. It would be really stupid, foolish. Think of your own synonym. to continue thinking, oh, death is a natural part of the process of evolution whereby, whereby things get better. That's stupid. Fear God, the beginning of wisdom. That is not how it works. And if you think that's how it's going to work, it doesn't end well with you. No, so he keeps going with this intense praying. Oh, by the way, before we get, before we move on, this, this statement in verse 12, we're going to come back to that next time. I, I, that was originally why I wanted to preach this sermon. I wanted to talk about how Christians need to be committed to numbering their days and thinking through life and death and thinking through end-of-life issues because it's a stewardship issue for us as Christians. And I wanted to start there, but then I thought, let's ground it in an exposition. So we're doing the exposition today. Next time, we're going to talk about the practical ramifications of what it means to number our days. So application comes next time. Let's keep moving on with this intense prayer, prayer for redemption, we might say. Verse 13, return, O Lord, how long? It's urgent, how long, God? But, but do this, do this now. Return, he's saying, God, come, come to us. God, help us. Some translations even translate it, Relent. Which is, which is, God, you've been against us now. God, please, be for us. Your wrath has been against us. Now, now do something different, God. 13 then says, have pity on your servants. What an interesting courtroom image. God, be fair. No. God, have pity. Have pity. Take away your anger. We, we, we deserve it, but, 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 but have pity. And then it really gets good. It gets great in verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Satisfy us in the morning. In this context, having used in 5 and 6 the morning earlier, it seems to be the beginning. Early in life, at the beginning of life. 
as you're providing this great interaction by your grace, satisfy us in the morning, in the beginning, not at, not at the end. Be gracious in that way with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Don't you love it? God, do this for us. Be gracious. You might say, be redemptive. We, we know this is our fault and we know we've done this in Adam, but, but God, please provide and provide through your great love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. You see, it's not one-dimensional. He's, he's not saying that the hardship is gone now. But he is saying there's rejoicing and gladness amidst the hardship. We're still living in the broken world. In one sense, the t-shirt's still true. Life sucks and then you die, but we don't wear those t-shirts. Because there's another dimension. Having been reconciled to this God, and we'll talk more about that, having had this God intervene and He's shown pity and He's shown grace, now we can understand something from a little bit different perspective, maybe a radically different perspective, that this for us isn't ultimately how it ends. And in the midst of all the hard stuff, there actually can be rejoicing and there can be gladness. And he even says, God, do it all our days. Give us a different perspective. And then it only gets better. Verse 15. Make us. Notice this has to be grace. This is not us just trying harder. This is God acting. He's praying. God, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. And for as many years as we've seen evil. Amidst all of this, I've got a broken body. And it's just more and more brokener. (laughs) You know? But amidst all of this, living in this broken and fallen world, God, would, would you do this the whole time? Would you make me glad? And as I see the evil, whether it's on CNN or Fox, depending on... What kind of person you are? (laughs) Political party? (laughs) As I witness the evil all around me all the time, God, make me glad. And obviously, He's not in some sinister way glad for the evil. God, bring gladness to my heart. It doesn't have to ultimately end this way. It transcends the temporal affliction. Then 16... Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let your work be shown to your servants, your glorious power to their children. How about that? I would suggest to you the reason 15 and 14 can happen is because of verse 16. You know what? Just look to, turn the TV on. I read the headlines today on my phone, just of the news reports of how many people killed in floods and how many people killed in battle and all of this stuff and scandals. And you just go, man, how can I be glad amidst it? And how can I be glad amidst my broken relationships? And how can I be glad amidst the brokenness of my body and all of this stuff? I think the way is in verse 16. Show your servants your work and show your glorious power to their children. God, show us how you're working in the world. 
How about even in this kind of text, which is a redemptive kind of emphasis, show us how you are gracious to sinners. Show us people being saved. Show us people having their life transformed as a result of being saved. God, show us your gospel power so that we can see all of this junk all around us and actually be part of the junk and say, I've got joy in my heart and I do sincerely have gladness amidst my own pain. Why? Because God has shown me his work in this world. Something that's going to last forever. It's not temporal. That's a good request amidst your suffering and amidst mine. And then in verse 17, let the favor, a good synonym would be grace. That's the idea here. Let the favor of our, our of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Show us the work of your hands, God, so that we're encouraged and we have joy. And oh, also, God, as your children, bless, establish the work of our hands. As we would want to, by your grace, partner with you and and partner with you in your work in this world, God, bless our efforts. It's not all for naught. God, be in this as you work through your Children and their children. Isn't it good? I think it's really good. Because after the first part, you just kind of want to bleed out, you know, and get it over with. But it ends so well. God, show us your work. God didn't just say, all right, enough. Just as his only attribute is not love, His only attribute is not righteousness. He's a loving God and a gracious God. And He's working in this world. And we do seek to partner with Him in gospel ministry. And we say, God bless us with this. Be in it. I think this sermon would be uh, somewhat helpful if I ended now. You may agree or disagree. (laughs) But since this is a prayer of Moses, I think it becomes more helpful in light of the second part. I've called it redemption. Luke 24, 27 says this, And beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. (laughs) Ta-da! There can't be any reconciliation. There can't be any Psalm 90 verse 12 to the end just because God decided. Because God wouldn't be keeping His word. Because He said, when you sin, you'll die. Wages of sin is death. Jesus is the one who said, you know what? Moses was talking about me. The hope comes from Christ. 
And then it even causes me to think about that passage that I just can't get out of my mind. Please don't pray that I get it out of my mind. You might want me to stop mentioning so, so often, but don't pray that I stop thinking about it. I can't stop thinking about 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, where it talks about Christ Jesus, Savior Christ Jesus, who brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. There's another ta-da moment. (laughs) We need immortality. We need life. And Christ brought it through the gospel. This is awesome stuff. Awesome stuff. All right, Lord willing, the plan will be next time to start building upon where we started and talk about, okay, how are we going to be wisely, in light of other scriptures, numbering our days what are our responsibilities as dying christians and how can we be christians who die well and therefore how can we be christians who live well because at the end of the day whether you're a little person or a big older person at the end of the day the reality is tick tock tick tock and so let's have it be for the glory of christ and have it matter Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for Jesus Christ who brings the hope, who secures the hope of the second part of this prayer. And we are grateful for Him and we would want to have you help us to fix our eyes upon Him. And Lord, help us as dying Christians because everyone who is here today who is a Christian is dying. And so, Lord, help us to finish well. Help us to plan well, to number our days well so that we might bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ not only on that last day, but that we might bring glory and honor to Christ today. Even if it means you are going to give us 70 more years or seven days. Help us to think and act Christianly. In Christ's name we pray.